0: Well, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn over to uh, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, we'll be looking at parts of much of that chapter today. Let's go ahead and look to the Lord in prayer again before we look into His Word. Father, it is always a delight to be with Your people and worship You. And we uh, help us, Lord, never to get over Your grace. Help us never to forget Your greatness. It's so easy for us to become complacent and indifferent and we need your empowering spirit to constantly take us back to the cross. Help us to remember the resurrection and our great hope through the spirit in accordance with your word. And so Father, continue to reign in our hearts and be glorified. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Um. As you know, I have six kids and... We try on we try more often, but at least on Saturdays, try to ask them to clean up their rooms, you know. And I don't know about you, but it's 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 a major problem with my boys, especially. My my girls do relatively well. My boys don't do so well. And and I can walk in on that room that I thought was cleaned up on Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, and I'll say like, "What in the world happened?" But within hours. It's a mess. Like, how does that happen? Do you ever wonder about that with our world? I mean, how do we get into this mess? People hurt people. There's national catastrophes. There's war. There's violence. There's murder. There's hatred. And sometimes you just say, how did we get into this mess? And of course, how do you get out? Where I want to focus today is where it all started back in Genesis chapter 3. It, it all started with rebellion. And I want to unpack that with you because what was true of them is true of us if we're not very, very careful. So come back with me to Genesis chapter 3 and we find out how it happened. It's a familiar story. But I often say it's like that Kellogg's commercial. Try to taste again for the first time, if you possibly can. Notice the problem, um, the nature of temptation and rebellion in verses one to six. Let me read it to you. couple and I'm, I'm going to stop as we kind of go along here. The Bible says, uh, "Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made." He said to the woman, "Did God actually say, "You shall not eat of the tree in the garden?" And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruits of the tree in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be, to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together. And made themselves loincloths. A couple of things I want you to notice in this passage. In, in the rebellion itself. Watch the nature of temptation. Have you noticed Satan, Satan's method of coming after us, folks, has not changed in thousands and thousands of years. Do you know that? And you notice what he does in this passage? He comes in a disguise, doesn't he? He does not use a direct approach. He comes through a serpent. And he doesn't come to attack God initially. He just wants to have a discussion. It's a religious discussion. Say, um, Eve, I wanted to get some background information here. Somebody had said this, and I don't know if it's the case, but is it true that God actually said this? D- do you see how he approaches it? What, Satan never comes to us with the chains that will bind us. Rather, he comes to us in this kind of casual way and just wants to have a religious discussion. It wouldn't be temptation otherwise, would it? I mean, if Satan came to you and said, hey, I'm going to destroy your life, Like, who's going to buy that one? No, no, it's a religious discussion. It's clarification about God. And he's insidious. And he is brilliant. Crafty, sly, subtle. Notice what his message actually says in this passage, folks. And And I tell you why. Because it's the same thing that Doug Finkbeiner is tempted with every week of his life and so are you so yeah you know, his his method is deceptive fair enough his message is diabolical and he says three things in this passage the first thing he does is he denies the goodness of god and what he's going to say at the end of the day is god is not good now it's it, it's interesting how the writer handles this passage. Because I think it's really interesting. Look at verse 1 again for just a second. When he talks about God, notice Moses calls God what? The Lord God. That's really interesting. Because in the Hebrew, it's emphasizing two aspects of God. Lord God emphasizes, on the one hand, He is a majestic other God. He's a transcendent, incredible God. He is there. He's other. He's God. That's true, isn't it? But the other word that He's used for God is the the word that refers to God in His intimate relationship with us. He's not only the God who is there, He's the God who is here, concerned about us and loving us. So when the writer talks about Him, he talks about the Lord God. He's both. Notice how Satan talks about him. It's subtle. Did, look, look, look there, did God actually say, and all the way through, he only ever addresses God as God. Never the Lord God. He is the other. He is there. And he is unconcerned is the point. It's really quite brilliant. And he's saying, God is not good. As a matter of fact, He said, you know what the problem with God is? There is something good for you and God is keeping it away from you. If you eat of that fruit, you will be just like God and you'll know good and evil. It's brilliant. And what he's saying is, you need that. When you read Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, remember what you read at the end of each day of creation? And it was what? It was good. It was good, 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 all the way through Genesis chapter 1. And then when you come to Genesis chapter 2, God takes the man and he puts him in this garden. And the idea is he gives him everything he needs that he might be in relationship with God. And the one thing he doesn't have is a woman. And what does God do? God brings the first woman to the man, doesn't he? And by the time you get done reading Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2, you say, boy, is God good. He gives gives us everything we need. And the first words out of Satan's mouth mouth is, God is not good. There is something you need that God is keeping from you. Have you ever felt like that in the midst of temptation? Man, have I. I've kind of figured that God set this parameter around me. And bummer, everything I need is outside of it. Do you ever feel like that? When you do, folks, and, and Satan is subtle, he'll take the language of want and he'll turn it into the language of need. It's not something I want, it's something I need. If I can only, I can only be involved in this other relationship, I would then have my needs met. No, 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 God, God's God's called me here. Yeah, but I need... N- n- no, you don't. But it feels like it, I know. But it's not the case. So he denies the goodness of God. He turns the language of want into the language of need. He also despises the sovereignty of God. He says, when you eat of this fruit, you will be just like God. Knowing good and evil. Um, did they know good and evil when they ate of the fruit? Actually, they did. I mean, Satan is really subtle here. Did they die when they ate of the fruit? Well, yes and no. Right? He says, look, if you eat, you won't die. Well, did they die physically right away? Uh, No. Would they die physically someday? Uh, Yeah. Would they know good and evil? Yeah. But you know, you can know cancer from the perspective of a doctor who sees it all the time. Or you can know cancer from the perspective of somebody that contracts it. Satan was promising them this when in actuality they experienced this. Do you see? He's very subtle. But he says, he says, look, you can be just like God. You know what Doug Finkbinder's problem is on an ongoing basis? I want my whole world to revolve around me. You know, if my, if my family just did everything I wanted and made my life comfortable, I'd be very, very happy. But is that what life's about? This text, Satan says it is. Doug, you can be just like God. What you need is, you need the world to revolve around you, not around God. That's, That's what you need. Rather than being the creature dependent upon him, you need to be the center of your universe. And everybody else just needs to revolve around you. And then life will make a whole lot of sense. And that's what he was telling Eve. And that's what he tells me. And that's what he tells you. Will my life come together if it revolves around me? No. It, it just starts down on a spiral and it gets out of control. Just look at what happens when you try to live for yourself. Just look. Has it ever worked? Has it ever brought meaning to our lives? No. Never. And he comes along in this message and he says, look, God is not good. And If you'll have it your way, then life will make sense. So he he denies the goodness of God. He despises the sovereignty of God. And he dismisses the justice of God. Eve, eat, you won't die. Actually, no, not immediately, but yes, ultimately. You know what a lot of people do in their lives? They um, sow their wild oats... And they pray like crazy for a failed uh, crop, <laughs> don't they? You know, oh Lord, I don't, I don't want to reap what I sow, so I'll sow and pray I don't reap. But we do. Teenagers have so much life. You know, I've got a bunch of teens in my home right now. I, I, I love teens. I'm, I'm, I found the teen, teen years to just be a joy. Uh, you know, a challenge too. Fair enough. But, but. But in so many ways, they have so much life and dad, I can do this and do that and thinking like, well, not exactly, but okay, you know. I mean, you know what it's like. And sometimes with that teen mentality is I can step in and I can do something and I won't face the consequences. And One of the hardest things for me to communicate to my kids is, yes, you will. Because the lie is as old as the garden itself. Satan comes slithers into our lives, wants to have just a friendly discussion and says, look, God is not good. God should not rule you. And you'll get away with it. You really will. And you never will. Unfortunately, they buy into it, don't they? And they become sinners. Notice the immediate results in verse 7 and 8. After eating, the Bible says they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. If you go back for just a second to the last verse in chapter 2, notice what the Bible says. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Isn't that interesting? And the first thing they do after they eat is they cover themselves up. Fascinating, isn't it? Because here's what happens. You and I were called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, body, soul, and spirit, right? And secondly, we were called to do what? Love our neighbor as ourselves. You know what happens in Genesis 3? When you mess this one up, what happens? You mess this one up. And because there's distance here between God and man, there is also distance between man and fellow man and man and woman and women and women and everything else. Humanity. Verse 8. This is, this, uh, this, is, this is an unbelievable verse. Notice what the Bible says. Verse 8. They, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Now, folks, come on. Like, how effective is that? Do you ever play hide-and-go-seek with your kids when they were preschool age? I don't know where they picked this one up. My kids figure that if their eyes were shut, I wouldn't see them. <laughs> like, what's that all about? So you're standing in the corner where I can, and you go like this, thinking, "Well, Daddy won't see me." Uh, come on, and you know, and we say, "Well, he's three years old. That's fun, sweet little child." But that's what they're doing with God. Like, what tree's big enough? But see, God who had come to them and spoken to them on a daily basis, now comes and he finds them trying to hide behind one of those little trees over there. And it just doesn't work. But it shows us that there is now alienation here. And because there's alienation here, there's, there's alienation here. So there's the great cover-up, which I just mentioned. Um, the, the, the second thing, and let me illustrate that. Not only is there covering up in our relationship with one another, but there's the first, there's blame-shifting. Notice what happens in 11 to 13. Interesting passage. Um, So God comes to them, and he says, uh, he says, why did you do this? And he said, verse uh, verse, verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you? You shall not eat. The man said, the woman... Whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Now folks, what if God would have come to Adam and said, Adam, what happened? And Adam said, God, it's me. Don't blame Eve. Don't blame the serpent. I mean, I'm the one. I'm culpable. I just, wow. Wouldn't that have been great? But the first thing he does is when God asks him the question, he goes like this. He covers up, and he blame shifts. Have things changed at all? If you get too close to me, when I've done something wrong, I will either cover up to protect myself, because I don't want you to find out what's really there, or I'll blame shift. I may even point back at you. Yeah, but you know what you do, right? I mean, look, we're just chips off the old block, folks. I mean, this is what our parents have done. You get too close, you protect yourself from people. And he it gets too close, you point to someone else. Isn't this an encouraging message? Aren't you glad you came out today? Oh, there'll be something at the end, so stay with me. I, I read this passage and I see me. There's ongoing results in judgments not only initial but also ongoing we call them judgments Uh, i think it's important to say god does not curse the man and woman he curses the serpent he judges the man and the woman there's a difference and in judging the man and the woman you remember the man in this text is judged in the area of work and the woman is judged in the area of childbearing I'm very, very thankful that I never had the childbearing issue. (laughs) I watched it six times. And it's painful. (laughs) You know? Um, But I want you to think about this. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God gives a gift to people. And the gift he gives them is, I want you to subdue the earth. And I want you to replenish the earth. Do you know procreation and work were gifts from God from the very beginning? And what happens in this passage is God says these two areas that are stewardships, that are great blessings, have now been impacted by sin. And when you work to the glory of God, it's hard as a reminder that we're sinners. And when you procreate and you bring forth a child, which is a wonderful thing, it's hard. And it's a reminder that we live on this side of the garden. Do you see? So he judges them in those areas. And then to make things a little bit worse, and stay with me, look at verse 16 for just a second. Verse 16 of this passage. The Bible says this. Oh, uh, Pastor Tim and I were speaking before I'm at that stage in my life where, I mean, I'm I'm nearsighted and and my my doctor is telling me I I need to move the bifocals and I'm fighting it like crazy. So if you see me read the Bible sometimes when I go like this, that's what's going on. Okay, I'm fighting it and and probably won't be able to hold out much longer because sometimes the print is like real clear and sometimes I'm going like, I can't quite make that out. But anyway, so anyway, in verse 16, notice what the Bible says, the very end. It's a very interesting verse. The Bible says, Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. I call it the battle of the sexes. And this is what goes on. God is saying, you know, from the beginning, I've given you work and procreation. I've given you a whole bunch of gifts. And I've established leadership in the home so that the man is to be a loving leader, not a tyrant or anything like that. He's to be the loving leader in the home. That was God's design from the beginning. And the woman takes on this role of submission. Doesn't mean she's a doormat or anything like that, but, but two different roles in the home. And what happens in Genesis 3.16 is everything gets turned on its head. It's the battle of the sexes. And he's saying, you know, your desire is going to be to try to manipulate and control this relationship. And your your tendency as the man will be to be the tyrant in the relationship. And so what you have, I mean, folks, before the fruit, we don't know if it was an apple, we don't know what it was. Before that thing's even rotten. We've got the battle of the sexes. We've got judgments. We've got blame shifting. We've got cover-up. We've got all that stuff. we got us where we find ourselves. Guys, let me just say one thing that, that I have found to be a great challenge to me when I read this passage. The man in the home is called to be a loving leader. And one of the reasons we've spawned, we have the whole feminist movement It's frankly because often men have been lousy leaders. And women are reacting to those things. You can understand that, frankly. And you think about the two tendencies of men. In this passage, it's either to be an aggressive tyrant in the home, to be the boss, which he was never called to be, right? Or, in Genesis 3, verse 6, when Eve ate of the fruit, where was Adam? He was right there, wasn't he? I don't know where I picked it up growing up. I always kind of figured he was out digging a ditch or something when she was doing that. But it's not the case. He was right there. Same guy who can be an aggressive tyrant in 3.16 is guilty of being a pet. He's guilty of passive resignation in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Same guy. I see to my own life. I can come home someday after a hard day at work and, My wife comes in and says, got a problem with the kids. You know, I have two tendencies. One tendency is passive resignation. And you know what I say? Honey, you handle it. Right? Just, I don't want to mess with that thing. Or, I don't want to talk about it. We're just going to do this. And both responses are dead wrong. Aren't they? Because God does not call us to be a tyrant over here or to be passive over here, but to be lovingly engaged in that home. So I read this passage and I see me. It's us. Well, thanks, Doug. This has been really good. And to make matters even worse, in verse 22 to 24, they're expelled from the garden. Put out. All that blessing now, they're put out into a cursed world. That's true. That's how we got into the mess. And I've often thought, if you would start reading in Genesis chapter 4 through Genesis chapter 50, and you would turn it into a movie in all of its details, what would you rate that movie? That's not a G movie, folks. That's not even PG. That's a, at best, it's R. Isn't it? I mean, you want to read about incest and murder and oh, lying and stealing. It's all there. I mean, it just, you just go like, whew, Genesis 4 already. So what's the solution? So that's how we've gotten in this mess, absolutely. And you know, here's the the truth. If you don't identify the problem correctly, you'll never find the solution. Remember that song, Imagine, imagine all the people living, and talking about, can you just imagine this world and everybody's loving everybody? And, And in the midst of that song, you know what he says? Imagine a world in which there's no religion. Because from his perspective, there cannot be any unity when there's religion, he's got this hope of something being different, but he doesn't even know what the problem was. And if you don't know what the problem is, you can never find the solution. Genesis 3 is the problem, folks. The end of the day, the pro- it's like that old pogo commercial. We have found the enemy, and the enemy is who? It is us. It's the way it works. But what's the solution? You don't get it full-blown in Genesis 3. You get, you get tidbits of it. And the thing I find in this passage, and, and, and I, I, the other thing I was thinking, um, when I was in college, I, I don't even know who sung it, I don't know, and I won't sing it for you, so please don't worry. But, but there was some song I heard on the radio one time, and, 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 and it said, says that I'll read the words, but I won't sing it, so trust me. Once upon a time, the world was sweeter than we knew, Everything was ours, how happy we were then. But somehow once upon a time never comes again. Maybe it was taken from Camelot or something, I don't know. Couldn't you see Adam and Eve singing that song? Man, once upon a time, and it's gone. And you know what? You know what's powerful about this book? The Bible tells us very clearly we can never go back. We can't go back. It's forever gone in that sense. We can do something better. We can go forward. And glimpses are already given to us in this text. Look, if you would, down at verse... First of all, this God who is quote-unquote not good is a God who protects them. Leaving them in the garden would have been a terrible thing, frankly. But he provides for them. Look, um, look at verse 21, would you? In the same passage. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. As far as we know in Scripture, that's the first time an animal is actually killed to clothe somebody else. It's already a picture, isn't it, folks? Death for clothing. Look at chapter 3, though, verse 15. As, as, as God is speaking... um. To the woman. I'm sorry, to to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Now here it is. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Folks, where is that going? It's going to Christ, isn't it? Did Satan bruise the heel of Christ? Oh, absolutely. But this... I mean, this promise, right after the sin of mankind, is a promise that says, there is coming one in the future through this woman. And he will crush your head, Satan. And you will be forever destroyed. So already there, folks, comes the promise. And as you read through the Old Testament, what do you find? You find a a just, mighty, mighty, powerful, righteous God who demands that sin is punished and dealt with. You also find an incredibly gracious, merciful God who says, I will provide. And those two themes just keep running through the Old Testament, running through the Old Testament until they join at the cross. And the promise given us there in Genesis chapter 3 collides at the cross and it's at the cross that God is both just and and justifier, He's both. And that's the hope. The hope is always the gospel. Imagine all the people. I can't imagine the people doing anything apart from Christ, folks. Look at the mess that we've gotten ourselves in. And look at every other attempt that does nothing but fail. But I have met many people. People who have come out of lives that have been devastated by sin. And they've trusted Jesus Christ and God's changed them. And there's just no way to explain it. Well, you know, psychologically, it doesn't work. From a sociological perspective, it doesn't work. There's no way to explain what God does in those lives. And you bring a bunch of these people together who have trusted in Christ and you plunk them together in a church and their backgrounds are as diverse as possible. Their socioeconomic stances are different. Their race is different. Everything about them is different. And what happens? You see a statement about the way people are supposed to relate and love one another in the church with all kinds of diverse people. And who pulls that off? It's not us. It's the gospel in us, isn't it, folks? It's the light that you guys were talking about. That's what it is. And Genesis 3 says the problem is rebellion. The hope is God's grace that we submit to. And I want to end by reading something to you that, that I, I found to be just a great blessing. In your Bibles, would you come with me to Revelation chapter twenty? There are so many parallels. There's there's about 15 parallels between Genesis 3 and the end of Revelation. And and, and John, John gets to the end of his book and he throws things in about the new heavens and the new earth and what it's going to be like in heaven, which stands in stark contrast to Genesis 3. And that's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel says we can never go back. We can do something much better. We can go forward. And we go forward to the cross. Through the cross, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Clear through to what God's going to do in the future. It's much better, folks. It's not not the same. It's superior. So notice a couple verses at the end of the book of Revelation. Look at Revelation chapter 20 for just a second. Verse 10. And hear Genesis 3 in the background. And the devil, who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and, and they will be tor- tormented day and night forever and ever. You know what I love about that? He's gone, folks. He will never do it again. Look, uh, look at Revelation chapter 21. And let's just read verse 4 and verse 25. Verse 4 says this. Well, let me start, let me start there in verse 3. It's, it's too good. It's hard not to keep reading. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. There's no expulsion here, folks. No. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more; neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Look at verse, uh, verse twenty-five, same chapter. Let me actually, let me get, let me go back to verse, yeah, verse twenty-four. By it's. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. There's no expulsion. The gates are always open. And very quickly, from chapter 22, look at verses 2, 3, and 14. Ah, Let me start with verse 1, chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life Brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God, and the Lamb, through the middle of the, and of the land through the middle of the street, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with with its twelve kinds of fruit. You see, there it is. The tree of life is there, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree went for the healing of the nations, and very quickly. Twenty two, verse fourteen. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Do you see what God does in the gospel? Everything that is lost is more than gained at the end of the day. What's the problem? The problem is us. Our parents were sinners, we're sinners. By birth and by choice. Yes, yes, yes. Where's the hope? The hope is always in the gospel. In which God comes to us, reminds us of the schemes of the enemy, empowers us through His Spirit, and tells us better days are coming. Isn't that the truth? So wherever you find yourself, wherever you've fallen, whatever you've experienced, It is the gospel that gives us hope. We are a chip off the old block, but we are being transformed day by day, and one day we'll stand in his presence fully perfect. And that's the hope of all people. Father...